0: Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a Q&A from the Apple TV Plus documentary, Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues, with director Sasha Jenkins and Oscar-nominated composer Terrence Blanchard. This event recently took place as part of See Me As I Am, Lincoln Center's year-long celebration of Terrence Blanchard in collaboration with seven arts organizations across campus. Film at Lincoln Center, Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Juilliard School, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, the Metropolitan Opera, New York Philharmonic, and the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. With the 61st New York Film Festival arriving this September, We're thrilled to announce that passes for this year's festival are now on sale. Be the first to experience a new slate of essential cinema from around the globe with our passes and VIP passes, both giving you access to one of the earliest pre-sale periods, plus single ticket fees are waived. Purchase your pass for the New York Film Festival by April 30th for lowest pricing at filmlink.org. Slash passes. A tribute to a founding father of jazz, Sasha Jenkins' comprehensive documentary Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues chronicles the life and times of legendary trumpeter Louis Armstrong, from his role in the birth of the musical genre he'd come to epitomize, on to his later adventures in Hollywood as an indelible on-screen presence. Working from a wealth of archival footage, Jenkins constructs a stirring ode to Armstrong that historically situates his achievements and public image, deftly tracing how the cultural figure cut by Armstrong was formulated against a backdrop of unapologetic systemic racism. And appropriately, the film is scored by none other than Terence Blanchard, himself a latter-day titan of the trumpet and the result is an utterly absorbing and moving homage to a true icon of American music. Now please enjoy the conversation with director Sasha Jenkins and composer Terrence Blanchard, moderated by writer Larry Blumenfeld.
1: Now my name is Larry Blumenfeld. Terrence Blanchard had a full head of hair at the time. He had no gray. He was composing the score for Spike Lee's Malcolm X which he later turned into a very fine jazz album as well. And you probably know much of the story from there on in as one of the most influential trumpeters, composers, band, leader, band leaders and educators in the jazz world, but also an artist who's working on a much larger landscape, including recently the Met Opera premiere of his, of his opera. Um, which was the first Met Opera presentation of an opera composed by a black composer. Um, and of course Terrence's next opera at the Met Champion opens April 10th. Um, and right, uh, Terrence was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, where he still lives now. Sasha Jenkins I met when I, ah, I had about half a head of hair. We were together in a, something called the National Arts Journalism Program at Columbia University. Sasha was born and raised in Astoria, Queens, where hip-hop and when hip-hop was ascendant. As a teenager, he founded a zine devoted to graffiti art and the first-ever hip-hop newspaper. From there, he moved on to Vibe Magazine. From there, he's done a, quite another lo- broad landscape of things, including films about the seminal hip-hop group Wu-Tang Clan and... Rick James, Um, and according to your bio, Satcha Jenkins' band, the 1865, was the first punk band to play outdoors on the grounds of Lincoln Center, and um, this event is an early salvo in See Me As I Am, Lincoln Center's year-long multidisciplinary celebration of Terence Blanchard, which, I think honors the range of a singular artist, but also suggests what creative artists like Sasha and Terrence are doing, which are breaking down the walls between the things that used to separate the buildings at Lincoln Center. So all year long, stay in touch, and you can find out more about what they're doing regarding Terrence Blanchard. Um, So I did, and I've written about these guys, The Wall Street Journal, the Village Voice when it existed. And recently I did a piece about this film where interviewed Sasha for Daily Beast. So let me start where we started there, Sasha. When you took up this project, what was your what did you know about Louis Armstrong and what was your what was your impression of Louis Armstrong? I mean, growing up in
2: Queens, I knew that there was a school named after him. I knew he lived there. I knew his house was there. I knew the hits. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, hip-hop and lots of other music was my main music, and uh, Armstrong wasn't my main music per se. And coming of age during the age of hip-hop, his mannerisms and how he conducted himself, t- from what I was told, not even from what I had fully understood, really didn't jive with where I was at that time in my life. So I, I don't want to say I completely wrote him off, but I pretty much wrote him off. Right. Uh, so then when I got the phone call, I was like, all right, let me... You know, take some time out to do some research and they had already done about two years worth of research so they just dumped a bunch of stuff in my lap and I was like this guy's the coolest person ever and you know you make a film about Wu-Tang, you make a film about Rick James, you make a film about Louis Armstrong, you realize that like when it comes to black music there are no genres, right? I think music are markers of particular times but The Rick James story is similar to the Louis Armstrong story, which is similar to the Rizzo from Wu-Tang story. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm telling the same story over and over again. And it's always, the music is a reflection of and a reaction to the environment of the American environment and who we are in America and how we react to that. So, you know, I got asked, like, was it strange for you to do Louis Armstrong? And so, no. Like, and when I told Nas I was making the film, he says to me, did you know that Louis Armstrong is my favorite artist? And so I said, "Well, you've got to be the voice of Armstrong." And so when he finally saw the film, and and "Wonderful World" is like his favorite song, and he's like, "He's like me. He's talking about the block." I was like, "I told you, he's the same. He's, it's, it's the same thing, you know." So, I don't know if I answered your question, but you
1: did, and more. But it's not weird that Nas said that. Nas's dad, Oludara, when he plays cornet. He's one of the few people on the planet who can get a Louis Armstrong sound out of it. And he plays a very different kind of music, but that sound that he gets is very old. So now I remember taking, I went to the Louis Armstrong House Museum in Queens, which if you've never been, you're in New York, why would you not do that? This is one of the great American shrines, but as you found out, one of the great troves of information. So I went there years ago with a a trumpeter from New Orleans, Kermit Ruffins, who's a little younger than you, a little younger than you, but when I brought Kermit there, he was like, yeah, growing up where I grew up in New Orleans, we were listening to the Commodores and Michael Jackson, and we didn't want to hear about Louis Armstrong. When you, Terrence, when you were growing up and when you were young, just picking up the trumpet, what did Louis Armstrong represent to you then?
3: Something we didn't want to deal with, you know, because for us, it was Miles Davis, mm-hmm. Clifford Brown, you mm-hmm. know, Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw, Digi Gillespie. Um, but it took me to join Art Blakey's band to have my head turned around because, you know, being in that band, I looked at Art Blakey as being one of the biggest renegades in the music And you were what, like
1: 18, 19? I was 19 years
3: old. And uh, he started talking about pops. And I was like, wait a minute, who? <laughs> and it made me go back and really do do some, do some work and do some research. And next thing you know, I'm hanging with Dizzy, and Dizzy starts talking about Pops. Mm-hmm. And then while on tour with our Blakey, we played a club in San Francisco called the Keystone Corner. And in the back in the dressing room, there used to be this huge photo of Pops and Miles. And... Pops is looking straight ahead with a very stern look on his face. And Miles is looking up at Pops smiling like a little kid. And that solidified it for me. I went, wow, I've, I've misjudged this thing the entire time. And basically what it was, it was the Hello Dolly stuff. Right. You know? When we saw that, we didn't... Because it's, it's we grew a, up,
1: we're about the same age. You saw yeah. him on The Tonight Show, holding the hand. Yeah, but it was a hello, darling, more yeah.
3: so than anything. Is when, when we saw that, we didn't... We saw it out of context. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't understand what it took for him to get there. And one of the things about this this documentary I'm so glad that Sasha made, what it revealed to me was, you know, some of us want to be... You know, rebels verbally. You know, we we some of us get out there and make a lot of noise with what it is we're speaking about. But the thing that I've noticed in this documentary, especially when you see the Danny Kay scene, right? What's the revolution is the music. You know what I mean? Pops put that music on such a high level; nobody could touch that. You know, if we, we always used to talk about it, just go listen to strutting with some barbecue or the trumpet introduction to West End blues, there are people who still can't play that stuff. You know? And pops played that with ease. And there was a there was one story, you know, in the jazz world, when you play the blues, it's a very common form of improvisation that we all know, you know? And the the, the little, known secret that nobody wants to talk about, we generally always play it in two different keys, either F or B flat, right? So everybody works on that stuff to be able to show everybody up playing in F or B flat, right? So you you wait for that moment to shine. You at the jam session. You're going to jump up there and play everything you worked on or either F or B, whatever the key is. And Pops talked about this one kid, guy who wanted to come up there and play with them, and he jumped up there and he said, that fellow didn't know we was playing in B. So every key he hit was wrong. But just the idea of that, you know, that's the level of musicianship that Pops was dealing with. And I think the thing, the lesson for me was know which battle to fight. Know which battle to fight. You know, if Pops would have been what we wanted him to be, we probably wouldn't know him. We probably wouldn't have any of this music. You know what I mean? But the mere fact that he played that game but set that bar high musically Listen, man, all of the uh, uh, Ben Crosby and uh, Boo Boo Boo, all of those people, they were trying to imitate him. Think about that. And, and Ben Crosby his...
1: was very, he admitted that.
3: Very... Right, and imitate his vocal style. Not him right. not playing right. the trumpet. Billy Holiday also. Style. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, for me, I'm I'm happy that Sasha put this out there for, for all of the, these other young kids to see, you know, to understand that, you know, sometimes you got to go behind the curtain and, and really understand what it took for this man to do what he did. And we're all grateful and, and, and we're the beneficiaries of it because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. For That's for damn sure. You know, I know that. I mean, because when you talk about Kermit Ruffin, you talk about some of these other young trumpet players, including myself, you know, I it, it blew me away to think about all of these young trumpet players in New Orleans who play – Louis Armstrong licks and don't even know that Louis Armstrong licks. Right. That's the type of impact this man has had on music that it's lasted throughout these generations and has still been the DNA of a lot of creative music from that from that area of the country.
1: Sasha, when you were started digging in, making this film, were there any one or two like aha moments of, okay, now I get it. This is who now I've really stumbled on who Louis Armstrong was.
2: Well, the information is in the, in the playing. Um, you know, I was a, always, a, as a kid, I was a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. And there's always hubbub about how he played the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. And then when I heard how he played the Star Spangled Banner and the information that's inside of that and that Baldwin picked up on that, you know, it just made me realize that, like, it's not always verbal. It's not always physical action music is such a powerful medium. And through that, I realized, like, wow, I've always wanted to make the Hendrix film, and it'll probably never happen because his estate is, you know, no comment. But um, I realized, I was like, wait a minute. I did the Armstrong film. He did everything before everybody and, and was the man. Like, I can't name anyone in the, who is, someone
1: told me Paul Roberson robertson was
2: you know a major talent who could do it major all major
1: talent right? and major activist and major right major figure but i don't think yeah i mean that moment the segment with the star Spangled better in the film is so touching and moving and it's also like when lewis armstrong played that it was as radical right as when Jimi hendrix did that and when lewis armstrong played those it's like you could go anywhere in the world, per person of any age, play those first 30 seconds of West End Blues. That's like an announcement of a new world. And it's just as potent. You know, it's like so you could hear Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, Spring today, and it seems radical. That, those 30 seconds are as powerful and radical as ever. So, um, Terrence, it's funny. I've written about you followed you scoring stories, writing, composing for stories. And then there was this moment in 2006, 2007, where you composed a score that was kind of a soundtrack for what you lived through after the levees failed and after the floods that followed the hurricane and the levee failures. And that was intense. But now here you had this... I mean, I can't think for a trumpeter from New Orleans to have to score a film about Louis Armstrong. How did you two... How did that conversation, because first of all, you've got all this Lewis music. How did the conversation about what was going to happen musically happen between the two of you, or how did that work?
2: Well, this gentleman said, it's Satchmo, I'm not competing with him. How do I serve the story? How do I compliment it? And I think it's complimented beautifully. It's seamless. You know, it feels, it has its own identity and it doesn't step on what's out there. So it's, I think he did an amazing job.
3: Thank you, but, but thank you. I think the worst thing I could have done was to try to play the trumpet oh, on yeah. those. You know, no, seriously. You know, because first of all, who wants to take away from or try to compete with Louis Armstrong? There's no need to do that. I think what I wanted to the music to be was the the heartfelt side of what we all. And, and and well, let me. I hope I explain this the right way. The heartfelt side of like people like myself who misjudged him. You know what I'm saying? Who who got it wrong, but now had a chance to get it right. And um, I wanted to create music that would be a beautiful backdrop, the emotional backdrop to what it was that he was going through. When he talks about being put in the boys home with that with that with the pistol. When he talks about the dude he said, I can't introduce that nigga. Yeah. You know, just all of those all of those things that he went through, the indignity of of all of it, man, you know, and to come out of it the person that he was, you know, which gave us all of this beautiful music, but not just the music, but he 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 set the table for this style of music to be viewed a certain way by everybody around the world. You know what I mean? That's the thing that I I feel very blessed about being a part of. One of the reasons why I feel blessed about being a part of this is because I got a chance to kind of like say thank you to Pops in my own way by writing this score in a way that doesn't compete or try to even come close to playing music from the period. There's enough of that already in the documentary, and there's no need... For me to either do that because I was worried it would make a mockery of, of, of what it was that he did. And I wanted to go totally the opposite way and create something that was an emotional backdrop, which allowed people to reflect on his words. You know, because I was just talking to Sasha before we walked out and I said, that's the thing about this documentary for me that I love. Because, you know, we always used to hear about Pops being socially conscious but it was like folklore, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but to actually see this and hear it, you know, it's just like confirmation. And it's, it, 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 I can't explain to you what it does to me as a person who grew up looking at this gentleman a certain way, you know? And I'm not embarrassed to say that because I think it's important to talk about it. Yeah. You know, I think it's important for us to admit that, you know, we judge this man. And like I said, the music is the revolution. When you listen to not only Strutting With Some Barbecue or Western Blues, go back and listen to some of the Hot 8 stuff. The arrangements themselves, the arrangements were amazing, right? Some of those arrangements had about two bars of improvisation. But what happened in the modern jazz era, they wanted to get rid of that and make it all improvisation. But Pops was really about making a musical statement. And all of those arrangements, man, are even powerful to this day. You know, I think about that all the time. He created the language of jazz. A lot of people start to think that the language of jazz is improvisation. No, 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 no. no.
1: That's one aspect. No, I mean, I think you could argue, and you do in the film, that he authored the phrasing that almost all American music that followed has, you know, including half of what you hear on the radio today, the phrasing of it. Um, So, Terrence, when you were studying at NOCA, New Orleans Center for Creative Arts in New Orleans. And, Sasha, when you were in school here in Astoria, Queens, you were not presented with this Louis Armstrong. No. Not at all. No. No. I mean, it wasn't close, man. You know, and that's a shame. Now, Terrence, when you're teaching now, I mean, you're teaching at a higher level, but are you trying to imbue a different...
3: um, Oh, of course. Of course, because you know, I don't want young kids to make the same mistake that I did. You know, I I I look at it and I go, you know, <clears throat> we have to put everything into context, everything. You know, tell me who was playing like that at the time. Name them. You can't. You can't. You know, and it's and it's one of those things. Think about this too, and I don't mean to be controversial, but think about this. We live in a country, especially at that time, when anything that was successful from our community, they had to be a white counterpart, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So think about that. There were white counterparts, obviously, but can you name them? I mean, Big spider back, you know, all those guys, but yeah. for the most part, we, we don't even deal with that music. It still pops, right? So that lets you know the power of what it is that he laid before everybody.
1: And as you display in the film, it's hard to grasp just what a star, an international star, how powerful his presence was. There were not that many, you know, maybe decades later, Muhammad Ali, um, but there weren't that many Americans in general, and certainly not black Americans, who had that level of stardom and reach. You know, Terrence, you were talking about, yeah, you certainly weren't gonna play any trumpet, One thing that's really moving, of course your writing for strings is so compelling, and that's a lot of what makes an opera work, but here, like at the end of this film with the Turtle Island String Quartet, you're evoking, you know, using strings that we wouldn't normally associate with this music to tell that story, and you did the same thing to express the tragedy and rage after
3: the hurricane in New Orleans, and that's... Well, listen, man, Wayne Shorter said something, Tavis Smiley asked him, what does jazz mean? And Wayne Shorter said, uh, jazz means I dare you, you know? And that's what I thought about when doing this, that he was he was gracious enough to allow me to try this, to do this, you know what I mean? Because for me, it would the easiest thing in the world is to try to play some music from the genre. Right. There's no thought in that, you know? For me, the, the challenge is like how do you lay down an emotional bed? Now, what most of you may not even realize is that the theme that I've written is based kind of harmonically off the of old rocking chair. Because when I hear old rocking chair, bro, it makes me weep all the time. I don't, I don't know what it is about it. There's something about that thing that it just emotionally grabs me. So, you know, some of that harmonic progression is kind of based off of that thing. And I said, if there was anything that I was going to take from Pops, I was going to disguise it, you know, in a way that people wouldn't readily be able to to make mm-hmm. the connection. But there is a connection.
2: But bring it, bring it back to the lack of education on Armstrong, at least for me and people like me, because music education was one of the first things that got cut when New York City was bankrupt when we were in school. Yep. That's why hip hop happened. Mm. You know, that's why we... Turntables went from being
1: no instruments, a tool to
2: an instrument. We made this thing an instrument, you know. So it's full circle in many ways, you know. uh, Armstrong playing music in the street with his friends, you know, improvising. You know, this whole scatting thing. It's like, you know, I say this: uh, there's an Armstrong in every neighborhood. In our neighborhood, it happened to be Nas. He Mm. happened to be the guy who was had the charisma and the talent and was able to transcend where we came from to go where he went.
1: And have you found in the communities, the hip-hop community that you work in or around that the presence of Armstrong is acknowledged and the genius of Armstrong is acknowledged?
2: I think now more people, you know, we. I think we had a hand in hipping people to him for sure. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the guy could dress. it's funny as hell. I mean, just who, who has all of that? I and don't...
1: in some ways in this film, he's gangster before it was...
3: They, yeah you were gangster right? but even
2: in language even in the way he speaks yeah. I mean just the whole package is just, just nothing nothing like it
3: you talk about gangster one of my favorite stories about pops and I don't know it's maybe folklore I don't know you know who kn- who knows uh, but I heard it from a lot of sources you know pops used to like his smoke right oh yeah yeah he was famous for that and uh, <clears throat> he was coming through Kennedy Center and uh, the JFK. And Nixon was coming through too on, on Air Force One, I think he was doing something in the United Nations or something. And they held Pops up at the VIP, you know, um thing for immigration. And Nixon comes in and uh you know, he's a big fan of Pops and they start to walk out and Nixon goes, Is there anything I could do for you? And Pops goes, Yeah, carry this for me. <laughs> so I believe it. I've heard that story from a lot of people. I don't know if it's true or not, but I still love it no matter what. I'm going to choose to believe it. Can you imagine just a dog running up to Nixon? That would have been hilarious.
1: Now, you know, Sasha, in this film, it's, I, I've heard some people comment that, oh, you've unearthed this Louis Armstrong that we didn't know about, yet the clips are, he's saying it on TV. It was, he was right out there. It somehow we either raced or forgot.
2: Well, because, you know, people look at Hello Dolly. You look at things like that and say, it's easy to focus on that, you know? I mean, imagine if he was alive now with social media and how things just get... And, you know, we didn't have... We didn't really have control over our images. We didn't have control over how we were perceived and, you know, how we were put out there in the media. So, literally, he's just out there naked pretty much.
1: Now... Terrence you know when you as you mentioned in Blakey's band all right you're a teenager and you're very quickly thrown mastering you know if not you would have been out of the band mastering modern jazz at its highest level and then composing for that band and figuring out how to write for that situation and then going on to work with the Herbies and Waynes of the world what was it like or what 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 did you have to do to adapt your talent to writing for film in this way and the way you have for so
3: many years was it very different it was very different because you know writing music for yourself it's all about you telling your story um but when it came time to write music for someone else you're helping a director put together a, an entire piece and one of the thing one of the it, 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 initial things that i had to get over uh is that you know when you're a performer, you don't perf- you don't perform in little bits. And what I mean by that, you don't do an introduction and then 10 minutes later come by and do something else. Well, these guys, when they make movies, you're always shooting out a sequence. You know what I mean? But then you put it together, then all of a sudden it looks like there's this arc of a story. So one of the things, the first thing that was hard for me to really grasp is to how to help maximize that, right? And... <clears throat> A friend of mine, who's who's my mentor in the business, Miles Goodman, uh, God rest his soul, was the one who really helped me chart it out on paper. You know, and we would look at scenes, and then all of a sudden you start to build a score based on where the how the arc of the the the, the film would develop. Now I don't have to do that now. I've been doing it so long I don't have to really do that. I'm accustomed to it now. But back then that was that was a, that was a big deal for me you know, trying to do that because I was coming from a place where you got on stage, you started your performance, you went from beginning to end and that was it, you know. um, And the other thing too, you know, back then, I used to always try to put an ending on every scene, (laughs) you know, not understanding that this scene is connected to three other scenes and it doesn't really culminate until it gets to the fifth scene, you know what I mean? So that, thinking in those terms, you know, uh, really, was something that I had to learn and it and it 's had a reverse effect it 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 really had an effect on how I deal with my live shows with my band, you know, understanding what that arc is you know i 'm not one to try to come out and like talk in between every tune you know i 'm not that 's really not my thing it 's like I like playing a bit and then I talk in the middle and then play a bit more, and then you know because I think the music is the thing that has to tell a story like a film, just like a film
1: and now Sasha maybe in sort of reverse or related to that you've you know you're a filmmaker and a documentarian and you focus you have focused so much on these musical cultures and these movements and these musicians does the your work as a filmmaker and your visual work does it grow out of the listening to the music is it suggested and shaped by the music itself.
2: Well, I was a music journalist before this and right. there's just so much information in music that you can unpack. I mean, you can interview someone and great get great information, but there's so much written in between the lines of music that just fills so much so much of a void of what's missing. And so again, I think mark you know music particularly with black folks is a marker of particular times, but there are consistencies throughout all those times and through listening to music you can bring them all together in interesting ways
1: and thank you for that little plug about music journalism because we know, met does anyone remember that well <laughs> does anyone remember we we met in a fellowship for music arts journalists that no longer exists and you know there are what I, you know one thing I love the many things I love about this film one is that in the appreciation of any artist or a musician in our culture, there are stories to tell. You have to so I've been lucky to be close to Terence over decades and there are these there's an arc of these stories. The opera didn't just happen. This opera that you will maybe see champion, there's a long arc of what happened to Terrence Blanchard as a musician as a composer, but also as a human being to have the empathy and
3: compassion to tell a very difficult difficult story. Well, you know, but that's the thing about Sasha doing this that makes it important. You know, you watch this, and it just makes so much sense, right, this documentary. But you have to understand that this documentary could have been something totally different in the hands of somebody else. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, and And you got that's why my hat goes off to him for doing this the way that he did it. He saw the real Louis Armstrong, you know, and put it, because you know, when the the, the thought that came to my mind when we, we said, you know we, we, we see the Hello Dolly and we don't know the other stuff." And, I, and the thought that comes to my mind is, why? Why don't we see the other stuff, but we see the Hello Dolly stuff? You know, so then there's that whole conspiracy theory thing. I don't want to go down that road, but you have to ask yourself, why is that image always propped up more so than the other ones? You know what I mean? When-
2: well, we can, you know,
3: huh? There's a reason, of course, of course. So that's why, that's why Sasha, a person like him, is extremely important because he understands this medium. You know he understands the caveats in it, and let me tell you something: putting this together is not easy. It's not easy because there's a lot of stuff you got to look at, and then you have to kind of figure out a a chronological order, and then you have to create a story behind it that'll keep you in in, engaged in what it is that you're experiencing. Well, our
2: editors also are fantastic. Um, Jason Pollard, for one, who's son of Sam Pollard. Um, So we had a great, I had a great rapport with the editors, but really it is, there weren't people like me 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago in the position to to make these kinds of films. And there are things that I'm going to focus on that someone else might not. And ultimately, Louis Armstrong is an American. I'm an American, I'm an American filmmaker. I make films for Americans, but primarily I first start with the community first because if you understand if the community understands what the film is about then it's going to resonate with everyone else and it has to speak to them first or else what what do you you know it's not really going to be effective and just hearing his voice in conversations like i never like perceived him to speak the way that he does in real life mm. you know he's hello dolly right. you, you figure everything is prim and proper but it's like yeah. he's a real person and um, hearing his voice definitely I feel, helps people understand who he really was.
3: And hearing his frustration in his voice at yeah. times. You know, I mean, because we viewed Pops as always this happy-go-lucky dude, you know, but man, he was a human being. He was hurt by, by the same things that all of us were hurt by, you know, and to hear, him, to hear him vocalize that in a way that I recognize, where I recognize the hurt in that sound. You know, I recognize the pain in that the way he's saying it, you know, just humanizes him in a way that I can't describe, you know. So, so again, think about it. This footage has been around. Yeah, that's the
1: amazing thing to me is that it's not you. The archives and the material that you dealt with, that was there. People mm-hmm. have written books about Louis Armstrong. People have done projects about told Louis Armstrong's story and that material was there, and they chose not chose to, not to do, it. Exactly. do what you did and tease out what you teased out, which to me makes it all the more remarkable. I love what you said about the community. at the, You know, you do at one point zoom in on that great photo, the famous one of Armstrong on the stoop with the kids all around him, which was part of his life, but then at the end when he passes – you have all these accolades, but then someone, one of his neighbors is like, yeah, it was a man on the street, man on the street. Right. It was just another guy. And that's, he managed to be both at one time. When mean,
2: he's living in Corona. He could have lived right. in Chelsea. He could have lived anywhere. But he's living in like <laughs> working class Corona. For
1: 43 like, years he lived yeah. there. Yeah. When he came off the road. Um a lot was suppressed, as we said, about Armstrong. It has been told that, you know, around the time of segregation and black girls being forbidden to show up in school in Arkansas, you know, Armstrong was very outspoken for one moment, the way that my president feels, you know, the way he treats black people in this country and go to hell. Um, I couldn't help but think about that in 2006, 2007, Terrence, when in the wake of a flood that resulted from neglect and in the wake of lots more neglect after that, you were outspoken with both your music and your words. And and since, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I've seen this development of a political and social purpose in your art.
3: Well, I mean, listen, man, you know, when you... See these great musicians and you hear the stories of them being run out of town, of not being able to stay in a hotel, having to sleep on the bus just to play music, right? How could I not be? How could I not be? Being a kid who came along as a result of their struggles, having the privilege of going on tour, staying in hotels, not even thinking twice about it, right? Right? But to hear the and and I and I'm closely related, in in to them where they 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 feel the need to pass that information on, you know. So, of course, and then one of the moments in this in this film that I love is when pops uh, I think it was Chicago he got to and it was cold, and he bought oh, coal for people, and just told them to Baltimore, come and get it. Yeah. it was Baltimore yeah. He said, "Just come and get it. Come, come take what you need." Right. How many celebrities we see doing that?
1: Yeah.
3: You know what I mean? Of the depression, man, that man, he... that man, that man had a certain level of compassion and and a conscience where he was sitting down and saying, "You know, okay, I'm in this position, but if I'm gonna be in this position, I should be able to help other people. Let me go ahead and do that." You know, that's another lesson. For me, because it's not just about stardom. It's not just about playing a concert. You know, like he said, you, we start with the community, right? If you're not taking care of your own community, it doesn't make, doesn't make a difference. So when it came time to do the Katrina thing, man, it, frankly, that stuff pissed me off. To see, people look like me called refugees. Right. I get angry now just thinking about it. You know what I mean? And I'm like, how dare you? Anybody else would be somebody who was a person in need but because they look like me, with refugees? Right. And that's what, you gonna to try to demean us to that point? No, that's not gonna go down in terms of us being able to have a voice and say something about it. It's the same thing now, you know, with the new band that I have, you know, we've been talking about gun violence, you know, all the time, we, you know, because back when the other guy was in office, we talked about him more than people getting shot. And it's a serious, and it's a serious thing. You see it still happening. You know what I mean? And it's something that we have to really address, that we're not addressing because we're allowing all of these this misinformation to get out there. So this something like this documentary, bro, just fuels me to understand that no, okay, I may be blessed to have this career, you know, but I'll have this career for a reason. Right. You know what I'm saying? He has his talent for a reason. Right. And we we you you have to recognize that. And, and take care of that and nurture it because just as quickly as we got it, it could be taken away. You know what I mean? So I, I value this a great deal. Every time I see it, you know, it, I, I get pumped, you know, because I think about, he didn't have to do that. People were just excited about seeing Louis Armstrong perform right. anywhere, right? right. They, they, that was enough for them, right? But it wasn't enough for him. You see? And that's, that's that's the thing that's important. That should be the lesson for a lot of young artists today. You know, because a lot of young artists today get paid and they go about their way with their money.
1: And I, I agree. And in a way, like, I wrote about this for Daily Beast, partly because it's a political website. And I see this film as, in some ways, being political. But really, it's more Sasha, what you said before. Community. Like, what you're doing is by, of, and for a community. And if you don't you know, what What purpose will it serve? How can it serve?
2: Well, when you go back to, you know, the perception of Armstrong during his day and, you know, these black celebrities coming out against him in the media, I mean, it's, you know, it makes sense for there to be people not on the same page. You know? I mean, this is a very old, old program, old playbook. The old playbook. That doesn't stop. S- still in use. You know, so... Um, we try to learn you know we try to look at history I, I feel like history I mean look at what's going on in Florida it's like they're trying to steal your identity they're trying to steal who you are and the minute you lose that it's game over they don't want you to know who you are I mean this is Ameri- it's not just black history it's American history right. and it's just like you just want to ignore a particular portion of American history it's I, insane uh,
1: I agree I've Learned a lot, especially writing in New Orleans, about the idea of erasure of history. It's very easy to do and, once it's has And gone, look, man, let me
3: just say, let me just add something to that. There's so much American history that even as African Americans, we don't know. And it's not just about African Americans; it's about all different types of people. Right. I worked on this one documentary, man. It was talking about, of course, we. we we just totally forget about Native Americans. You know, we, we just kind of write them off, which is a shame, you know? But then you look at all of the other people who have had struggles in this country, and that's their American tale. That's the American tale nobody wants to tell. They want to have this pie in the sky and, you know, the land of the free and the brave. We know that's not true, right? And this thing is a pure example of that. Because on the one hand, here you have this man who played that game to perfection, right? To become one of the most popular faces on the planet. Think about him—a man who looked like him on the screen with uh, um, Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. <laughs> that wouldn't—that—that—that that, that, that wouldn't happen. Man. You know what I mean? So I mean, on the one hand, when I saw it at first, I took it out of context. But when I look at it now, that's my one of them, that's one of the that was one of the biggest baller moves you could ever make.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
3: But you have to. But you understand what I'm saying? You have to do something to rise to that occasion in this country because they're not going to give any person of color that kind of gravitas just because they like him. Mm-hmm. You have to. You have to. You have to. You have to bring the product. The product was the music. Right. Like I said, that scene. That, for me, is one of my favorites, and I'm glad he put it in there. And you did it beautifully, because it's just like a little short thing, but it's the one with Danny Kay, right? And what people don't get about that scene is Danny Kay can't keep up. No. No. But it happens for a split second. Yeah. Right?
1: No one really could. Right. Um, All right, so I've made a solemn promise that at a certain point, I would open it up to questions. And so... Do we have any questions for Terrence or Sasha? We need to turn the lights on. I see see a hand right in the front, so that's easy to see.
2: Hi, I'm Diana Campbell. I talk with Diana TV show. Hi, Terrence and Sasha. Hello. Mr. Bluefield. Thank you. Um, Terrence, I wanted to ask you, I also lived in New Orleans, and I'm quite sure your parents know me. You were a little boy when I was there, Okay. um, doing this docu- documentary, also to you, Sasha, what was the, how long did it take you to make the documentary and what inst- gave you the incentive to make it? Um, they had done research about two years before I got to it. Mm-hmm. The incentive was they called me and I said yes. <laughs> Thankfully, it's the best decision I made and it took us about a year and a half to get it done. Okay. Um, Terrence. Because she lived in New Orleans, and um, Louis Armstrong lived there was very important there. what um effects did that have on you playing your music, especially with the sex?
3: Well, like I said, you know you know his his impact musically is still being felt. Those kids are playing those ideas and don't really understand it. but I think in terms of doing this documentary, one of the things we've never talked about, and I think people should realize. He called me to do this documentary right around the same time, a little bit after the mayor was taking down all the Confederate thing, statues in New Orleans. right. So I, I looked at it as a moment in time like, no, things are changing. And, 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 and it's, you know, sometimes uh, in life we always go, when will they, why don't they? You know, and a guy always, one guy told me, he said, listen, man, if God put the question in your, in your brain, you may be the person to deal with it. So when he calls me to do this and I'm looking at all of that stuff go down as well, I jump at the chance for this cuz I I like I said, I look at it as an opp- opportunity for me to tell Pops thank you after being misguided about what he his contribution was to the to the world of music for so long.
1: Um do we have time for one or two more questions? Thank all you. right. Uh, I'm gonna let let yeah. Why don't we get someone from back there? And while you're doing that, you know, I talked to Terrence right after they removed those monuments, and what you told me then was, it's like a weight was lifted that I never knew was there.
3: Yeah, it, it, there was this Beauregard monument that I used to drive by all the time, and man, we were waiting for that thing to come down, <laughs> and um, uh, it took it took them forever. And the sad part about it was those guys that took the stuff down. They were firemen who had to wear masks, bulletproof vests right. and helmets, you know, because of the threats that they were under. And when that thing finally came off I, I, the reaction was something that I, I didn't expect. I didn't expect to have that reaction. I'm like, wow, I felt lighter, you know? Do we have another
0: question? Yeah. Yes, uh, my question is to Sasha. I'm curious
2: about your decision in the filmmaking in of itself. Like you had a lot of folks that had, you did a voiceover as opposed to cutting to certain folks that spoke. And I just wanted to know your decision as to um, not bring it on as far as a visual and just have it as a, uh, the voiceover. I think when you have Armstrong himself, his voice, um, you want to stay focused on that. You know, how many, inter- how many documentaries have you seen where someone's sitting in a chair reminiscing about a guy that they didn't even know? I mean, most of the people in the film knew him. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wanted to get people at the time of when it happened, and it felt like it was a more effective choice to use voices instead of seeing people and take you out of what's
1: happening. Cool. Can we do one more? Let's find someone, find someone back there. Um, God bless you for freeing us from the talking heads.
2: I mean, I've got other ones that will have some talking heads, but. Try to do something different here and there.
1: Do we have another question coming?
0: Okay. Hello. Um, I'm a composer at Juilliard,
3: and I have a question for Mr. Blanchard. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, in black music we don't necessarily have genres. So, how did you apply, you know, your experience as a black musician uh, to the classical sphere? Well, it's like, you know, my my composition teacher, the way Roger Dickinson, the way he taught me, is like he, he taught me that all of these things are DNA that could be malleable, right? So when you look at the Rite of Spring, what is it? It's based off of Hungarian folklore. But Stravinsky, as a composer, knew how to take that DNA and build something bigger from it. So that's the way that I was taught. I was taught to look at something like, There was another guy, his name was Hale Smith, another great black composer who I I studied with after Roger. And when he listened to something that I'd written, he told me, he said, sound like you were trying to control this amount of space without having the ability to control this amount of space. Right? And what that meant to me was, okay, being able to take that idea, seeing all the permutations that can come from that idea, and then everything spring from that idea. And what's the best, best example of that, that most people know in the world? Da, 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 right? So, as soon as I say that to you, you go, oh, I get it, right? But music has really evolved over the course of generations with just that ability to do that. So, for me, it's like, what is the DNA, that harmony from old rocking chair? But you don't recognize it as that because I'm not using it the way that they used it, mm-hmm. right? But it's there. And the thing is to take it and take it out of the realm of the jazz, the typical jazz ensemble with horns and a rhythm section in the back, but put strings there. And the strings are not playing a typical melody, right? I have this just be da, be da, because I didn't want to take away from anything that pops did. So there's no need for me to write a whole bunch of notes, right, because then that would be distracting, right? But I needed something like sentimental. But the sentiment comes from those two notes then the DNA comes from that harmony. So as a composer, what you need to do is always look at the DNA information that you have around you. It could come from anything. It could be a rhythm. It could be harmony. It could be melody. Take the melody, flip it around, turn it backwards, right? You know, uh, there's, there's one piece that we play with my band. The piano player finally realized that the bridge is the melody in retrograde. <laughs> or there's one tune that I recorded with Dr. Connell West is called Choices, right? The whole entire introduction is the same chord changes but played backwards, right? So there, these ideas are all over the place. And, and once you learn to, to have those tools that allow you to see other possibilities, man, the world becomes like it becomes, you know, infinite, the number of things that you can do. Then it's just a matter of making choices, Uh,
1: If I may, I just want to speak to part of that question for a minute, because, you know, Louis Armstrong was one of a long lineage of musicians who said they didn't really want to deal with that word jazz. And sometimes around students, they ask about, is this jazz, is this classical music, is this world music? And I'm like, whenever you hear those terms, you got to think about who named something that term. Usually they want to own, name, own, and then sell. And that's the purpose of those words. So if you can it's very good for marketing, yeah. not good for art. Right. Can we do one more? We can't do one more. Well,
3: then I'm thank- sorry, man. I was trying to get to you in the back. Yeah.
1: All right. Um, please help me thank Sasha Jenkins and Terrence Blanchard. <laughs>